James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. We begin this evening a new section of James with another of his more than 50 imperatives that punctuate his short letter. Now the subject is partiality, treating people differently depending on their social class or their wealth. We call this respect of persons or favoritism. James has just written about how true religion demonstrates itself in care for widows and orphans. Perhaps that thought prompted him to write this next section, though widows and orphans are not mentioned and are not specifically the poor that James now writes about. My brothers, (coughs) show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, Jesus, as I mentioned at the outset, is mentioned only twice by name in the letter. But honor is certainly paid to him with the title James bestows on his older brother, the Lord of glory, a title we find elsewhere in the New Testament, as for example in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. It can be understood in different ways, but it definitely contributes to the New Testament witness to the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention uh, to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I'll return to this shortly, but don't imagine that this is some kind of imaginary scenario or exaggeration on James' part. (coughs) Precisely this kind of public distinction between the rich and the poor was a commonplace of life in the world of that day. And in saying what he said, James is requiring his Christian readers to break ranks with their culture in a way very likely to bring offense. But to behave as if such distinctions of class and wealth mattered was to abandon the gospel ground and set one's feet firmly back in the world. Now James, of course, is not saying that proper respect ought not to be granted to those do it, to certain people demonstrated in outward ways. The Bible shows us That being done properly in many cases, respect for the king, officers of his government, for older men and women, and so on. It's not demonstrations of respect that James is condemning here, but favoritism and partiality. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? It was, if you remember, a scandal of the Lord's own ministry that the poor heard him gladly while the upper echelons of society were largely immune to his appeal and were often offended by the fact that he associated so regularly with people they regarded as the dregs of society. He didn't limit his ministry to the poor, but they got more of his time and attention than did the rich and the powerful. James' point is obvious and simple. If the Lord himself 
regards people as fundamentally the same, irrespective of their worldly station, and is indifferent to worldly distinctions such as these, then his people ought to be as well. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? It's often assumed that this statement indicates that this was precisely the problem that these Christians were facing. Being poor themselves, they found themselves at the mercy of the rich. It's impossible that this is the case, or at least partially the case, though it's also clear from what he says that there were among them those who had status or wealth sufficient to tempt them to look down on those among them who had much less than they did themselves. In any case, the point is obvious. It hardly makes sense to treat with special honor a class of people more likely to be your enemies than your friends. That the rich blaspheme the Lord's name is, of course, a generality, not a fixed law. There have always been godly men and women among the well-to-do, but it was not a secret in those days, hasn't been a secret ever since, that it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a poor man. And the poor man finds it easier precisely because his poverty makes him so much more conscious of his own need, of the injustice of human life, and of his absolute dependence upon the grace of God to change his circumstances. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. To call the law of God the royal law, is to remind us that it is the law of a king. In this way, James draws attention to its authority over our lives. To refer to it here is a reminder that the treatment of poor people with dignity, respect, and generosity was hardly a new obligation of God's people. It had always been their calling. As far back as Leviticus 19.15, We read, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. And of course, that was just one particular application of the general law cited by James here, but found for the first time in that same 19th chapter of Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. And throughout the Old Testament, as you remember, we have the same indifference to status and treatment of others as both the practice of God and the behavior of a godly man. In Job 34, 18 and 19, we read of God himself, that he says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked men, who shows no partiality to princes nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. 
For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, the Lord Jesus, as you remember, made the same point in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. So did the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapters 3 and 5. Obedience that picks and chooses from the commandments of God is regarded in the Bible as no obedience at all. To put it bluntly, far from perfect obedience to all the commandments is counted in the Bible as real obedience because God cares so much about the motives of the heart. And someone who is aspiring to be obedient to God in all things is obedient in God's sight. Punctilious obedience to a few commandments, on the other hand, together with utter indifference to other commandments, is throughout the Bible regarded as disobedience, pure and simple. This was the fatal error of Israel through much of her history. It was the fatal error of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. As one commentator helpfully puts this principle, when we, say, when we see the crescent moon, we say, there's the moon. Because the whole is there, even if we can see only a part. In the same way, the whole law of God is represented in every individual precept. Or to put it another way, the law is not like a heap of stones, but a sheet of glass. We could take one stone from a heap and leave the heap intact. But when we throw a brick through a window, it strikes in only one place, but it fragments the whole. The law of God is like the glass. Break it at any one point and the damage cannot be contained. The cracking spreads through the entire area. Once again, we have the law of God described as the law of liberty, as before in chapter 1, verse 25. The phrase indicates both that we can keep the law, because Christ enables us, we are free in that sense, and it is through obedience to that law that we become genuinely free. That is to say, we come into our own as human beings and find true freedom from the oppressive forces of life in this sinful world. So, speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You recognize this too, as you recognize so much of James' teaching as the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, a teaching that comes in a variety of forms so important is it to him <coughs> among his Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is this one. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Later in the same sermon, we have the principle applied in a different way. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your, holy, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And of course, a still more exact parallel to James' remark here is another statement in that same Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
everywhere in the Bible, true faith in Christ and in salvation by the grace of God is demonstrated in life by a person's gracious spirit toward others. How can a man who understands that his impossibly great debt has been paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ, then treat others without grace and mercy himself as if somehow or another they must deserve his goodwill. Think of the statement of Paul in 2 Corinthians 8-9, which we read in worship this morning, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That gracious condescension on God's part, his self-sacrifice on your behalf, we're taught in many ways is to become the living principle of our lives as well. Thus far, the word of God. We know from the Gospels that there was a definite stratification of Jewish social life, with the upper classes retaining most of the wealth and looking down on those who were poor. The fact that the Lord's compassion for and interest in the poor was an offense to them is some powerful evidence that while no doubt they admitted some responsibility to care for the poor, the law of Moses made that obligation all too clear, their heart wasn't really in it. And it was not simply the financially poor they looked down on. People in certain trades, people who lived in ways they regarded as disreputable, people with certain forms of illness were in many ways non-persons among the Jews during the days of the Lord's public ministry. And what was true among the Jews was even more so the case in Greco-Roman culture generally. High social status or rank was immensely important to the Romans. The wealthy and the powerful got the front seat at the shows, and they got that by right. The clothes they wore bore symbols of their status. When the state distributed money, food, or wine, they were entitled to a larger share, even though they had lesser or, in many cases, no need. Separate courts tried cases having to do with the upper class and then cases having to do with the lower class. The upper classes could not be sued by their social inferiors. They received more lenient punishment if convicted of a crime. At dinner parties, the seating was arranged by class. If a poorer client was invited to such a party, primarily to witness his patron's wealth and glory, usually not out of any genuine friendship, he could expect to be actually the butt of a number of jokes. And he would receive food and wine that was obviously inferior to that being served to the more honored guests. All of this was considered perfectly normal and proper in the Roman world. But it went deeper even than these behaviors by which partiality was shown <coughs> with naked interest to those of higher social class or greater wealth. The rich genuinely despised the poor. Classical literature is full of upper-class sneers at the laziness and the poverty 
of the poor. Cicero, for example, speaks with contempt for craftsmen, petty shopkeepers, and all that filth of the cities, though he is, in those words, describing an immense portion of the population of the imperial world. Roman nobles thought that poverty was itself dishonorable, and they felt very little sympathy for the plight of the poor. On a wall at Pompeii, one man wrote, I hate poor people. If anyone wants something for nothing, he's a fool. Let him pay up, and he'll get it. Another Roman wrote, To certain people I shall not give, even though there is need, because there will still be need, even if I give. Remember, huge numbers of people in that world were slaves. And most of the slaves, not all of them, but most of them, belonged to the lowest, and certainly the lower echelons of society. But don't suppose that this temptation to partiality or favoritism, as it were, leaking in from the culture, was therefore a problem just for the early Christians. Let me give you just one other illustration of how the problem of partiality has raised its head in Christian practice through the years, of how the church has always struggled to be true both to the law of God and to the principle of salvation by grace. This from a situation far nearer our own time and concerning one we think of in largely heroic terms. Churches that were state churches rarely managed to put James' teaching here into practice. Jonathan Edwards' church in Northampton, Massachusetts in the 1730s, remember, this was the time of the Great Awakening. Many in that church had experienced the salvation of God in particularly powerful ways. The church was in the process of building a new meeting house. But seating in New England sanctuaries, as it had been back in England, was assigned by status. So a new seating plan had to be drawn up by the town's seating committee. The town could not agree on whether to continue the practices of seating men on one side and women on the other with the young people in the balcony, or to seat people on the main floor by families. After much wrangling, they decided to do both. The new meeting house included 35 box-shaped pews around the periphery, some of which were occupied by family units. The rest of the seating continued the traditional separation by gender, women on the opposite side from their husbands. Seating by family was more comfortable, but it could also accentuate family rivalries when one family was seated more prominently than a nearby rival. That was particularly so when the town decided to make wealth the primary criterion in determining seating. To consider age secondarily and to consider men's usefulness, as in public service, still to a lesser degree. Previously, age had been the primary consideration and wealth only secondary. Edwards' biography con biographer continues, Because New Englanders prided themselves on regulating their worship on the Bible alone, one might think that they would have taken more to heart the biblical condemnation of those who loved the uppermost seats at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogue. 
That's the Lord's remark in Matthew 23, verse 6. That they ignored this instruction reminds us how essentially hierarchical their social assumptions were. Not to honor social distinctions, even in church, was to them as unthinkable as it would be today for persons in the military not to honor differences in rank. Although Edwards himself protested against the spirit of this wrangling and preached against those who seek after a high seat in God's house above seeking eminent holiness, he also took for granted that social hierarchies were God's provision for good order. Many factors have long contributed to the difficulties the church has had to put James' instructions here into practice. First, there is the love of money, a temptation for us all that draws men to the wealthy like moths to a flame. Then there are the cultural patterns that give the tendencies of the sinful heart almost invariably a very strong shove in the wrong direction because those social patterns almost invariably favor the wealthy and the powerful and teach us to look up to them and to aspire to be like them. Then there is the inevitable desire that the church should profit from the patronage and the generosity of the wealthy and the powerful. I'm reading at present an immense new study of the problem caused by the legal recognition and then the imperial protection and even endorsement of Christianity from the fourth century onwards. Peter Brown, the Princeton professor of history, is one of our finest scholars of the early church. His biography of Augustine, written when Brown was a young man, is still regarded as the finest introduction to the life of the great church father. Brown, now an old man, entitled this book, Through the Eye of a Needle, a reference, of course, to the Lord's remark about it being harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. In the first few centuries after Pentecost, it became the nearly universal expectation that when a wealthy person became a Christian, he or she would divest himself or herself of that wealth, give it to the church or give it to the poor. And amazingly, a large number of wealthy converts did exactly that. They gave it all away. But when the church was formally recognized, and when huge numbers of Roman citizens entered the church because it was now viewed with favor by the government, the church was faced with the problem of a large number of wealthy converts who did not surrender their wealth, but began in some cases to support the work of the church out of their wealth, and in some cases, not. The church accommodated herself to wealthy members, and as Brown points out, there was nothing wrong in that per se. Abraham was and remained a wealthy man by the blessing of God. So was Job, so was David. The Lord was buried in an expensive tomb that was donated by Joseph of Arimathea, one of his followers. It's clear from the letters of Paul that there were wealthy men and women in the churches he had founded. There were slaves, but there were slaveholders at the same time. But the church in this way began to acquire 
significant wealth because it had amongst its number many well-to-do, if not in some cases, very wealthy people. And so the situation we know still today was born for the first time. Fundraising within the church became common, what we would nowadays call a capital campaign designed to raise money for this or that, a new church building or an orphanage or a hospital. In a thousand ways, the church began to make use, often very happy and holy use, of the wealth of her members. One example of this particularly interested me. This again from Peter Brown's new book. Augustine was the Bishop of Hippo for 35 years. And in addition to everything else the great man did, the books he wrote, the daily pastoral ministry he conducted, he preached some 6,000 sermons over those 35 years. And those sermons are one of the principal treasures the church possesses from the patristic period. Racy and practical and exceedingly rich, both theologically and pastorally, an almost perfect example of the preacher's art. They are a priceless inheritance from Christianity's early centuries. In reading Augustine's sermons, and you can now read them in fine new translations that wonderfully capture the great preacher's art and power, you know that in most cases you are hearing Augustine's living voice. They were not carefully edited later to make them more polished, more suitable for publication. And do you know why that is? Because rich members of his congregation in Hippo themselves paid to have skilled secretaries take down the sermons in shorthand as the words came from his lips, word by word and sentence by sentence. At least with some of these sermons, the ones that were not too severely cut down by medieval copyists who were only interested in Augustine's theology and not in Augustine's Africa or his parishioners or the specific issues of congregational life that he addressed in his sermons. I say at least with some of these sermons, you can now hear Augustine almost as if on a tape recording. Rich people have done wonderful things for the Christian church through the ages. Powerful people likewise. Martin Luther would almost certainly have been executed near the very beginning of what we nowadays refer to as the Protestant Reformation with unpredictable results or consequences had he not had the patronage and the protection of Frederick the Wise, the ruler of Luther's home state of Saxony. So wealth and privilege have been the instruments of gospel advance for many centuries. But nobody reading the Bible or observing human life could doubt the temptation it posed to the church to have both wealthy and poor in the same congregations or, as often happened, to form congregations that reflected the population of their neighborhoods, some very wealthy, some very poor. Still, at its best, the church realized that both the law of God and the example of Christ required Christians to be kind and generous to the poor, to be advocates for their dignity, to treat them in every way as equals 
so far as everything truly important was concerned. They knew how the Lord Jesus had concentrated his ministry among the outcasts and the despised in his own society. They knew how the Bible and Jesus himself often used the term poor as a metaphor for a Christian. They knew very well how explicitly the Bible in its entirety forbade partiality based on class or wealth, and that they knew to judge a person's value or importance by such worldly measures was to betray both the grace of God and the message of the gospel. Paul had taught them that the love of money was the root of all kinds of evil, and they knew very well that the Lord Jesus had made a point of telling them to lay up their treasures in heaven, not on earth. The whole weight of biblical ethical teaching, as well as the internal logic of the gospel itself, required them both to devalue the importance of money or power as the measure of one's value or life, and to value instead the importance of generosity or kindness to the poor and the needy. Indeed, in fact, the Lord had made a point of saying he would finally, at the, at the great day, judge a person's life by whether or not he or she had fed or clothed the poor. It was not a case, it was never a case, of earning one's way to heaven by generosity to the poor. That is impossible, and the very idea that it might be done was understood to be a profound betrayal of the cross of Jesus Christ. The motivation was, in fact, much deeper, purer, and more honest than that. It was the fundamental recognition that we are all poor ourselves, that God has been exceedingly generous to us in our great need, and that true faith in him and love for him, in the nature of the case, will and must express itself in behavior of the same kind, in generosity of the same kind, in a willingness to love someone who has very little to give us in return. Such was God's love for us. The church at its best demonstrated these convictions in dramatic and beautiful ways. Callistus, a former slave, became bishop of Rome in the year 220. Some years before, as a pagan slave, he had been arrested and imprisoned for theft. And now he was the leader of one of the most important churches in Christendom. As bishop, Callistus allowed the marriage of patrician girls to freedmen, that is, to former slaves, something that was actually forbidden in Roman law. We don't know whether that contributed to his martyrdom, but it is evident, certainly, that the church understood very well that it was the spiritual quality of a man that was his recommendation either for office or for marriage, not his wealth or his social status. Or better, consider this. The first great poet of the Christian faith, not a hymn writer, but a writer of poems to be read and recited as literature, and so the spiritual father of Dante and John Milton and William Cooper and so many others, was Aurelius Prudentius Clemens, born into a Christian family in Roman Spain in A.D. 348. He had a distinguished career in the imperial government, but then retired to devote himself entirely to writing poetry. Well, educated in the literature of the Greco-Roman world, his 
were poems in the high register. They compare favorably with other poetry of the, of the classical period. In one of his books of poems, entitled Carmen Martyribus, Song to the Martyrs, Prudentius tells the story of Lawrence, a deacon in the Church of Rome in the middle of the third century, a century before Prudentius himself was born, who suffered martyrdom under the persecution under imperial or emperor Valerian, probably in A.D. 258. Lawrence was the senior deacon of the Church of Rome. He was in charge of the church's treasury. The prefect of the city had heard that the Lord's Supper was served in the Christian sanctuaries in vessels of gold and silver illuminated by golden candlesticks. Probably not true of most of the sanctuaries in the city. But he ordered Lawrence to surrender the church's gold and silver to him. To which Lawrence replied, according to Prudentius's poetry, Our church is rich, I deny it not. Much wealth and gold it has. No one in the world has more. The, line, the lines sound better in the Latin than in the English translation. Lawrence secured time from the prefect to collect the church's wealth, three days, and spent those days going about the city, gathering the sick and the poor together. The people he collected included a man with two eyeless sockets, a cripple with a broken knee, a one-legged man, a person with one leg shorter than the other, others with serious infirmities of one kind or another. He wrote down their names and then he collected them in the main entrance of the church. Only then did he seek out the prefect to bring him to church. When the government officer entered the door of the church, expecting, of course, to see tables laden with expensive cups and plates and candlesticks, Lawrence pointed to the ragged company and said, There are the church's riches. Take them. Enraged at what he took to be mockery, the prefect ordered Lawrence's execution. I think that is a biblical principle. One avoids the temptation that James is describing here, whether as an individual Christian or as a Christian church. The temptation to pay attention to wealth and status, one avoids that temptation by pushing hard in the opposite direction, by making a point of ignoring such considerations and concentrating instead on ministry to the poor. When you make the poor the heroes of your church, the representative Christians, you protect yourselves from otherwise irresistible temptations to forget everything you know as a Christian and both envy the rich and show partiality toward them. Now let's bring James's wisdom home. We are Presbyterians. We have been throughout our history almost all the time, a middle-class and upper-middle-class church. We're a church with quite a bit of money. Years ago, I came across a cute little piece that was designed to help us see how the various denominations all had something to be said on their behalf and how they all contributed something and something important to the church's ministry. It went this way. In each case, 
talking about the gospel. If we could just make it beautiful, like the Episcopalians do, if we could just shout it like the Pentecostals do, if we could just spread it like the Baptists do, if we could just adorn it with beautiful anthems like the Lutherans do, and so on and so on. Do you know what was said about the Presbyterians? If we could just pay for it like the Presbyterians do. What that means, of course, is that we are perhaps particularly subject to the temptations that James is warning us against here. We do not have much poverty in our church. We've never had much poverty in our church. And we need, therefore, to do what the ancient Christians did and set our faces toward the poor and the needy. It isn't, of course, always financial need that should elicit our generous concern and help, though perhaps it is that more often than not. C.S. Lewis, in the 1940s, when still at Oxford, gave lessons to a war evacuee with serious learning disabilities, a lad with a mental age of eight. A great man of letters, one of the most highly educated men of the world of that day, fluent in languages both ancient and modern, Lewis constructed out of his own paper flashcards with letters and words on them and used those flashcards to give this young fellow a daily lesson in how to read. We probably see a stoop in what Lewis did. I'm sure he would say there was no stoop at all. One of God's creatures was helping another. A Christian was practicing his faith in the grace of God, the humble service that Jesus Christ performed on his behalf. At the time, it can seem uncomfortable, unnatural, even hard work. Standing back to see it for what it is, what Christian could possibly not want there to be a great deal of that in his or her life. Amen.